brother. <clears throat> okay. If you ask 15 different denominational theologians what you must do to be saved, it's possible you would get 15 different answers. Um, some might tell you that conversion lies in a ceremony or an ordinance, a sacrament, uh, church membership, uh, properly worded confession, a properly worded prayer, properly worded statement of faith. Um, you, could get, you could get any number of, of answers depending on who you ask. Almost every so-called Christian denomination has its own distinctive formula um, that it uses and likes to emphasize. But the Bible is one long, open salvation invitation from the living God. And the interesting thing is, if you, if you survey the Bible and you study all of the invitations that God issues to men, uh, they all seem to differ, or many of them seem to differ, in, uh, in their specifics. Uh, I just, I'm just going to do... Uh, uh, just a really brief survey for you, real quick, okay? Just a couple of examples from Scripture and the way that many of these invitations differ. Deuteronomy 30, 19, God says, choose life. Isaiah 55, 6, God says, call upon the Lord. Jeremiah 29, 13, seek the Lord. Matthew 7, 13, enter by the narrow gate. Matthew 16, 24, deny yourself. Matthew 18.3, become childlike. Acts 16.31, believe. John 1.12, receive. Acts 3.19, repent. Hebrews 5.9, obey. Matthew 10.37, love Christ. Luke 14.33, give up everything. That's just, that's just a very, very small survey of some of the commands, some of the invitations from the Lord. While you might find exceptions to this, they differ a lot. I like, I like what John MacArthur says about this. Every time you look at an invitation to salvation in the Scripture, it's different from the last one you looked at. And I love that. I love that about the Scripture. I love it. They do differ. And I love that they differ. You know why I love it that they differ? Because they defy formulation. They defy man's ability to try to put uh, Christianity into a simple one, two, three, four to-do list. A formula. It really defies formulation. Beloved, the Jehovah-conceived design and effected salvation, it's too big, it's too mysterious, and it's too supernatural to put into a formula. Fundamentally, salvation is a supernatural event. It cannot be controlled. It cannot be uh, managed. And it cannot be put into a formula. Men cannot do that. Although men all down through the ages have tried to control and manage what God offers in the Gospel. Jesus said as much to Nicodemus, John chapter 3. You know the famous passage. I'm going to read it to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Jesus says, Do not marvel that I said 
You must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. True, authentic, genuine biblical Christianity, it's bigger than a religious formula. Jesus says as much numerous times. Jesus said, you must be born again. And there's not a religious man on the planet that can control that and can manage that and can put that into a formula. Jesus said, you must be born of the Spirit. You must be born from above. And I love how Jesus drives this point home. (laughs) He says, man, you can no more control the moving of the Spirit than you can control the wind. I love it. I love the, the mysterious aspect of what God does in the life of one of His children. I was talking to a couple of believers this week. Really, I wasn't even thinking about the sermon introduction, but I was talking to a couple of believers. One of them said this to me. You know, I can remember the time when Jesus just wasn't very interesting to me. And now He is. Another believer said to me, you know, I can, just, I can remember... I can remember having no particular interest in Jesus. And now He is irresistible to me. Friends, this wasn't a formula. These people shared with me. This wasn't a formula that happened in their life. It wasn't wasn't some formula that they did. The wind blew through. The wind blew through their life. The Holy Spirit blew through their life. It's my testimony. I've shared it with you before. 1983, I grew up in the church and I was baptized. I did the Baptist formula and I was baptized as like you're supposed to be baptized when you're eight years old in the Baptist church. And I did all the stuff I was supposed to do, but it was meaningless to me. It meant nothing to me. Jesus was only an icon to me. I wouldn't give you a nickel for him. If you'd have pushed me to the wall and asked me for the truth, that's what I would have said. But I was in Bible class because my mom made me go. Yes, I was 28. But she had a lot of leverage. So um, I was sitting in Bible class, and this guy gets up and he reads the Gospel of Matthew. And I heard him. I heard Jesus for the first time in my life. I heard him like I'd never heard him before. It's like for the first time I had the ears to hear. And friends, it, it, it wasn't something, it wasn't some formula I did. That's not what it was. The wind was blowing. The wind was blowing through my life and the Spirit of God was at work in my life. I love the way one theologian says says it. He says, we don't decide to be alive. We simply discover that we are. And I, I know that some of you here may not fully embrace or understand that statement, but there is that aspect to Christian conversion that is beyond the formula. It's beyond the formula. It's the work of God in the life and in the heart of his children. I discovered I was spiritually alive and I went after Christ with all I had. And I still am. (laughs) I still am pursuing him. I still am pursuing him. I have found that not only is he interesting, but he's beautiful and desirable and irresistible and compelling. Yes, in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking about 
He's highlighting the divine side of human salvation, the sovereign act of God that defies religious formulas. It's, it's the, the, the born of the Spirit aspect to human salvation. Jesus said, you do not know where the wind comes from and where it's going. He says, that's how it is for every man or woman who's born of the Spirit. I love that heart transplant thing that God talks about in Ezekiel and Jeremiah, Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. God says, I'll give you a new heart. That's what He did for me. <laughs> if you're a Christian tonight, that's what He's done in your life. He says, I'll give you a new heart, a new spirit. I'll, I'll remove your heart of stone and I'll give you a heart of flesh and I will put My Spirit within you. Men can't manage that. Men can't manage the divine side of human salvation. But if we are serious, uh, Bible believers, we understand that there is that supernatural aspect to coming to Christ, to, to biblical conversion. But we also understand that God requires a definite response. God requires a definite response to His invitation. It's acting out the new birth. Christianity is preeminently a state of being. Jesus said you must be born again. You must be born again. And our lives will manifest that that has occurred. But our response, what is our response? Our response is what? Faith. Our response is by faith. And we receive all the words of Jesus by faith and we act on all the words of Jesus by faith. You know, man can't, even, man can't really put that in a formula either. No man can give me faith. No man can say, say these magic words and you'll have faith. Do this magic prayer and you'll have faith. That's not how it works at all. We know that faith is what? What does Ephesians 2 tell us? Faith is what? It's a gift from whom? It's a gift from God. So again, we see the, the divine element here. But we, we are called to respond to God's invitation. It's what we've been talking about all the way through the book of James. Back to Sarah Groves and her song. If we're born again, it will spill out into our lives. It will just break wide open and spill out. This new heart will spill out. Deeds will spill out of this new heart that God has given us. In other words, uh, from those using those uh, invitations to, to salvation that I, I shared with you earlier, all this choosing and, and calling upon the Lord and seeking the Lord and entering into the narrow gate and denying ourselves and believing and receiving and repenting and obeying and loving Christ enough to give up everything that flows out of our regenerated heart and the faith that we exercise. All I'm trying to do for you, friends, is I'm trying to paint a beautiful picture for you uh, that, that we might have some worship-provoking sense of how big the work of God is in our lives. It transcends, it transcends Christian formulas. It transcends every denominational formula. It's supernatural. It's supernatural. And James, it's one of the things he's saying to us tonight in our text this is just a huge invitation to come to Christ. That's one thing this is. Verses, uh, uh, chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, it's just an invitation to come, to come to Christ. 
And it's highlighting man's responsibility to, to respond to the commands of God. And as I told you earlier, uh, chapter uh, 4, verse 6, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And then verses 7 through 10, God just fleshes out what this humility looks like. What this humility looks like. And as we've been saying, as we've been saying, if it's real in our life, it'll be palpable in our life. It'll be conspicuous in our life. People will see it. Just to use some examples in the book of James, people will see it in the way we handle our trials, the way we handle our, our temptations. People will see it in the way we respond to the Word of God. We don't just hear it. We don't just talk about it. What does a real Christian do? He does it. People can see that in our lives. The real Christian does the Word of God. People can see in the way we deal with others. We are compassionate and we are impartial. People can see that, that we guard our tongues. We don't fly off the handle and say things we're sorry for. Well, at least not very often. Obviously, uh, we do fall at times. But we guard our tongue. We guard our speech. People can see in the way that our faith is actually alive and well in our deeds. I'm just reviewing James for you. People can see it in the way that, that, that we live by the wisdom of God. It's apparent that we don't live by the wisdom of the world. We live by the wisdom of God. And people can see it by virtue of the fact that we are no longer friends with the world. And remember what I told you a couple of weeks ago. James is doing what every good pastor does. Every time any self-respecting pastor preaches, he knows that there are wheat and he knows there are tares in the congregation. There's, there's born-again believers out there and there's people out there pretending to be born-again believers. There's people out there just, you know, playing religion with God. And so James is, is doing two things when he, when he writes his book. He is uh, simultaneously speaking to both the wheat and the tares. And he's, he's warning those who are merely playing religion with God to come to God wholly and completely. And he's exhorting those who are born again to go on in their sanctification. To go on in their sanctification. Man, I love Isaiah 66.2. Again, God is fleshing out. He's fleshing out humility here. What does it look like? What does biblical humility look like? We're going to see it. Chapter 4 of James, verse 7 through 10. But I love that Isaiah passage. Isaiah 66, 2. And I failed to share it with you two weeks ago and I meant to. Listen to what God says. But to this one I will look. The one who is proud and self-righteous in his religious uh, good deed doing. Is that what God says? God says, to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who what? Trembles at my word. Friends, that's why we don't edit God in this church. We tremble. As every thinking man or woman should. We tremble at the word of God. James says God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And James invites us into this God-pleasing humility. God-pleasing humility. James chapter 4, 7 through 10. Let me read it again for you. 
Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy uh, to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. James says, here is God-pleasing humility. And where does it start? Submit yourself to the living God. It's not... Play religion. It's submit yourself to the living God. And that's the one thing the unregenerate man will never do. He will never submit himself to the living God. Now, he again, he may play religion with God, but he will never submit his life to the will and words of God. With breathtaking arrogance, man has declared his independence from his Creator. We've talked about this many, many times. It's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 1, 2, and 3. Let me just give you a few excerpts from Romans 1 through uh, 3. Even though they knew God, what? They did not honor Him nor give thanks. They exchanged the glory of God for lesser things. They exchanged the glory of God and the truth of God for a lie. They are, do you know the text? They are haters of God. You knew that, right? They are insolent. They are arrogant. <coughs> they are boastful. There is none who seek for God, not even one. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is God's invitation to proud, haughty, arrogant man, submit yourself to me. Step number one. What a great invitation. God says, submit yourself. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. God says He's opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. And God invites rebellious man into the paramount expression of humility, and that's submission to the Creator. Submission to the Creator. Let me ask you, Christian friend, are you truly submitting your life and your will to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's what He's talking about right here. And He's saying to the unbeliever, come and submit your will to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he's saying to the Christian, are you, are you really submitting your will to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? I'm wholly convinced, and there's some controversy here among theologians as James talking to believer or unbeliever. I'm convinced he's talking to both. You may or may not disagree with me on that, but I'm convinced he's talking to both. Submit. What does it mean to submit? To surrender. To yield. To subject oneself to the authority of God. Let me ask you, Christian, professed Christian, are you submitting your will to the authority of God in every sphere of your life? I'm not talking about just when you come to church on Sunday. I'm talking about in every realm of your life. Is it submitted to the Lordship of Christ? That's what God's talking about. That's what He's talking about in this text. The Greek word translated, translated submit it doesn't connote a passive thing. It's not a passive thing. It's more like enlisting in the military. Hey, you sign up to enlist in the army of God. That's, that's the imagery here. This is not a passive thing. This is something you decide to do. And you go do it with great 
vigor. One English translation says it like this, so give yourselves completely to God. And I believe that's the sense of it. When, when the Bible says submit yourself to God, really the text is saying give yourself over to God voluntarily. I'm enlisted. Are you enlisted, friend? <laughs> really? <laughs> are you enlisted? Are you in God's army? And are you at work for these few moments we have on the planet? I think that's the sense of the word submit. It's like, the, it's like Paul on the road to Damascus. What did Paul say? Man, he realized he'd had a God encounter. And what did Paul say? What was the second thing Paul said? First thing he said was what? Who are you? Right? I think that's correct. Is that right, Jim? Then he said, remember what he said? The very second thing he said. Nobody knows. Don't ever forget this. The second thing Paul said, what shall I do, Lord? You remember? Paul said, what shall I do, Lord? That's what God's talking about here. That's what real Christianity looks like. What shall I do, Lord, in my money? What shall I do in my job? What shall I do in my marriage? How should I raise my kids? What things should I uh, put before my eyes as, and call it entertainment? Lord, what should I do? I submit to Your authority. I submit to Your divine authority in my life. That's all the Bible saying. You know, I can contrast it to the rich young ruler. You remember the rich young ruler? He ran up to Jesus. Man, he was such an eager potential convert. Man, he ran up to Jesus and he, nailed, he, he kneeled before Him and he said, Man, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus said, Man, you've got to do the commandments. And the guy said, Man, I've done all that. I, I'm a great religious guy. And Jesus, of course, could see his heart. Jesus saw he had an idol in his heart. And Jesus said, hey, go do this. You go sell everything you have. You give it to the poor and you come follow me. Remember the account? The man couldn't do it. He loved his money more than he loved God. Perfect illustration. He wanted to be religious with God, but he did not want to submit himself to God. It's a perfect illustration. And that man went away grieved that day. Because he loved his money more than he loved the Lord. <clears throat> Excuse me, I think I'm losing my voice. It's the first time it's ever happened. Look at verse 7, the B part there. God says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I like the Greek here. If you go to the Greek, the literal translation is stand up against the devil. Again, <clears throat> it's not a passive thing. Stand up. Against the, against the devil. Don't lay there and get kicked around. Stand up against the devil. That's what God is saying. Stand up against the devil. If we've studied our Bibles, if, we believe, if we're Bible believers, we understand that there are only two realms of authority on the fallen planet. There's the realm of authority from God and there's a realm of authority from Satan. There is no place in the middle. I know that, that man likes to think that he's autonomous and he's running around doing his own thing, but the Bible makes it clear that we are either in bondage to Satan or we in, are in the service of Christ. There's no place to be in the middle. And God says... You're either in submission to me or you're working for the adversary. You're working for the adversary. 
We're either walking with Christ or Ephesians 2. 2, you're a good brother. I don't care what Karen says. No, she loves you too, man. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, I think we're either walking with Christ or it's what Ephesians 2, 2 says, that we're walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. A clear reference to the evil one. A clear reference to the evil one. I think this helps us with what we talked about in James 4, 4. Remember when we talked about the friendship of, with the world is hostility to, toward God? Why is that so? Because Satan is the little g, God of this world, right? So we're either in God's service or we are in Satan's service. Don't tease yourself. There's no place in the middle. There is no place in the middle. No place in the middle. But look what, it's, look what the text says. Resist the devil. And what will the devil do? If a child of God resists him, what will the devil do? Someone tell me. He'll flee. He has no power before Christ. Zero. He is a joke compared to the living God. He's a dog on a leash. That's the best thing you can say about it. He's on God's leash. And His days are numbered. And God says, Christian friend, God says, if you resist Him, He will flee from you. Don't blame it on the devil. <laughs> We've already talked about this in the, in the book of James. James says when we sin, it's our own lusts. The devil must flee from the child of God. He can't compete with the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 8, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. What an awesome promise. This is a breathtaking promise from the Scripture. Again, if we know our Bibles, we know that God is even out front on this. You know, how many Christians I've talked to over the years who, who believed that, man, they were seeking God and they were seeking God and they were, in a human sense, they were seeking God. But when they got on the other side and they read their Bibles, they realized that God was drawing them the whole time. Amen? Jesus said, no man can come to the Father unless he is drawn by the Father. Another huge aspect to the mysterious salvation of men and women according to Scripture. Sometimes I sit by my desk and something comes to me and, and I, just, I just have to get on my face and worship. But as I thought about these things, I thought the Christian is the sought-for seeker. Have you ever thought about that? It came to me. I'm the sought-for seeker. Jesus said, I've come to seek and save that which was lost. And Jesus says, no man can come to the Father unless the Father is drawing. Friends, I, if you're a Christian tonight, you're the salt for seeker. What an awesome thing. What an awesome gospel. What an awesome God. Our God seeks sinners that He might save them. I love Jeremiah 29, 13 which, with, that echoes this. Uh, 
this James text here, and I share this passage all the time. People say, well, you know, what do I do to find God? And here it is. Here's the answer. You seek Him. But what, is God, what is the promise of God? For those who seek Me will what? When you seek for Me with all your heart, God says, I will be found by you. God can always be found. If you seek for me with all your heart, God says, I will be found by you. And I love how Eugene Peterson paraphrases Jeremiah 29, 13 in the message. Listen to what he says. When you get serious about finding me and want it more than anything else, I'll make sure you won't be disappointed. I love that paraphrase. I love that paraphrase. So, we've said it hundreds of times in this pulpit that authentic Christianity is not preeminently doctrinal, it's not preeminently liturgical, it's not preeminently ceremonial. In fact, God hates those kinds of things when it's simply rote, when it's simply brain-dead religion. God hates it. He says, this people worship me with their lips, but what? Their heart is far from me. God hates that. Man, if we just read through the Bible superficially, we can understand that. But real Christianity is relational, John 17, 3. It's knowing God. And it's an invitation to intimacy with God. And the true Christian has turned and is progressively turning his back on the world. And he is making himself the friend of God. Look at 8b. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. First thing I want to say to you is, why hands? Why does he say hands? What's the, the symbolic uh, imagery here of hands? What is it? Because hands are symbolic for action and behavior and deeds. We do it with our hands. That's the, the symbolism there. But he said, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, you double-minded. It made me think of that great verse in Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. Listen. Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, neither uh, is His ear so dull that He cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden His face from you so that He does not hear you. I have no, in my mind, no doubt that James is talking to both the unbeliever and the believer here. James is saying to the unbeliever, repent and believe and come to Christ. Stop being double-minded. The literal Greek is stop being two-souled. Stop having two souls. Stop trying to love the world and love God. You can't do both. Jesus says, impossible. Right? Close. Uh, impossible. You can't love two masters. You will hold to the one and despise the other. You have to decide. You can't be two-souled. You can't be two-souled. That's the literal Greek there. But I think he's also talking to believers here. There's certainly an application for believers here, particularly those who might be playing religion with God, which in my view is epidemic. It's epidemic in the modern church. Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You can't serve two masters. And so, but for the believer, I think, I think James is saying, go on in your sanctification. Confess your sin. 
Cooperate with the Holy Spirit in your sanctification. It's an invitation to continue on in sanctification. Look at verse 9. Be miserable and mourn and weep and let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Wow. <laughs> You're not going to hear that preached at Happy Church. You'll never, never hear that preached in the largest church in America, so-called church in America. You're never going to hear that in Happy Church. But God says, hey, here's real humility, being broken for your sin. And again, I have no doubt He's calling the, he's calling the unbeliever to Himself. That's God's invitation. Turn away from your sin that's separating you from me. Be broken over it. Be humble about it. Be contrite. He says, mourn over it. Grieve over it. God is inviting men to Himself when He invites us to mourn over our sin. God says, be afflicted. Be miserable. No question He's talking to the unbeliever here. No question. Grieve over your sin that separates you from me. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who what? Mourn. Blessed are those who mourn in this sense. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. It reminded me, this text reminded me of those two guys over in Luke 18. You remember uh, the two guys that were, were praying and uh, the, the self-righteous Pharisee, the religious guy, you know, he was... He was he was just praying so everybody could hear him. And he was, he was uh, just thanking God that he wasn't a horrible sinner like all these other people around. And, and he was telling God, he was telling God how religious he was and, and how he fasted each week and how he did his tithes. And, and he just, man, God just had to be so happy to have this guy on the team, right? But there was also a tax collector there who beat his breast and he would not raise his eyes to heaven. And he cried out to God, Lord, forgive me for I am a sinner. And what did Jesus say? Who went away justified that day? The man who was broken. The man who was broken over his sin. Psalm 38, David is lamenting over his sin and he uses words like, a, like it's a burden, like he's wounded. He talks about being bowed down and being low. He talks about mourning. He talks about being crushed in the spirit. He talks about groaning. He talks about failing strength. And then he says this, For I am ready to fall and my sorrow is continually before me. For I confess my iniquity. I am full of anxiety because of my sin. I have no question that the Lord is, is talking to unbeliever here. But He's also talking to the believer we need to deal with our sin. And what's that great promise in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9? If we, if we come to the Lord and confess our sin, He's faithful and He's righteous to forgive us our sin. How many of you have come to the Lord with a grievous sin on your heart and you confess it to Him and the, you just can almost physically feel the grace raining down? Anybody ever feel? Anybody experience it? Just the grace of God raining down. It's the most bittersweet moment of a Christian's life. Man, I've sinned against the Lord. And I, you cry out and you confess it to the Lord and the rain just starts falling. The grace just comes down. And God washes you clean. What an awesome gospel. What an awesome, awesome 
gospel. Look at verse 10 quickly. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Another great promise from God. Peter said the same thing in 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you at the proper time. It's what God does. He takes broken, humble, contrite, penitent sinners and shockingly and scandalously He turns them into sons and daughters. This is the Gospel. It is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who will believe. From dust (laughs) to glory, right? That's what we were, dust. From dust to glory. From enemies to co-heirs. This is what God's done in your life if you're a Christian tonight. It's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. So as I was working on this sermon this week, I kept thinking about the prodigal son. My mind kept going back to the prodigal son. I think he perfectly illustrates these four verses. The prodigal arrogantly rebelled against his father. This is in Luke 15. You can look it up at your leisure. Uh, He made him, you know, with great... uh, Premeditation, he made himself a friend of the world. But the text says, when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, what did he do? He ran to his father. He submitted to his father, James chapter 4, verse 7. He drew near to his father, James 4, verse 8. He was single-minded in his pursuit of his father, James 4, verse 8. He dealt with his sin, James 4, verse 8 and 9. And he humbled himself, James 4, verse 10. And what did the father do? Anybody remember what the father did? And here's our awesome, here's our awesome, awesome, unspeakably awesome, gracious, compassionate, loving God. The father sees him from a distance He felt compassion for him and he what? He ran to him. And he embraced his son. And he kissed his son. And he brought out the best robe and he put a ring on his finger and he planned a huge party for the boy. It's a picture of God. It's a picture of what God does when men humble themselves when they draw near to Him, when they deal with their sin and they submit to Him. And the Father in the prodigal son parable extravagantly exalted His Son. Extravagantly exalted His Son. And here's the promise. uh, James chapter 4, verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord and He will exalt you. Does anybody believe it? Amen? He will exalt you. Friends, I just want to encourage and exhort you to live like you believe that. So, if you're here tonight and you're an unbeliever, you've never truly submitted to the Lordship of Christ, you've never truly drawn near to the Lord Jesus Christ, you've never truly grieved over your sin and repented of it, you've never truly humbled yourself before Christ, you have an open invitation 
from the gracious and good Father to come to Him tonight. It's an open invitation. Repent and come. Be, draw near to God. Submit to God. Humble yourselves before God. And Christian, tonight, if you're here, you do know the Lord. I exalt you to go on in your sanctification. Submit to Christ in every area of your life. I don't want you to keep this little box in the area over here that you don't give to Christ. You know, we're really bad about that. We're really bad about mental segmentation. Give it all to the Lord. Draw near to Christ. Confess and deal with the sin that's in your life. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Humble yourselves in the presence of God and He will exalt you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for the Bible. We thank You for it. We thank You that You've preserved Your Word for us. We're not poking around in the dark. We're not making it up as we go. We're just listening to what You say. And You say some marvelous and mysterious things in the Word. Sometimes we don't fully understand it. But that certainly doesn't mean we should edit You. So Lord, we stand in awe of Your Word. We stand in awe of what You tell us about salvation and how You're at work in a mysterious way that we don't even understand. And yet You clearly tell us that each man or woman must respond in faith. Oh Lord, I pray if there be one here that doesn't know You, that they would respond in faith. They would respond in faith. That they would submit themselves to Your Lordship. That they would draw near to You. That they would want to repent of their sin and deal with it. And Father, that they would humble themselves before You. What a beautiful invitation. What an awesome God You are. Thank You that You never stop inviting us into the Kingdom. Thank You, beautiful Lord. Thank You for this great exhortation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Ancient words ever true.